Welcome to Jim Lang's Retire Secure Podcast, where smart money talks. Throughout his career, Jim Lang has made it a priority to provide his clients, readers, and friends with useful, cutting-edge information, as well as peer-reviewed financial and tax planning strategies, so that they can make the most educated decisions and really get the most out of what they've got. We hope you enjoy the following special read broadcast from the Lang Vault. Please stay with us until the end so you don't miss more information on how we can help you protect your wealth and ensure your family's financial security for the next generation. And now, Jim Lang. So I was cycling down the path uh, with my friends in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and the route took us through a darkened tunnel, and I didn't see a big pothole in front of me, and I went down hard. I couldn't get up. I had to be rushed to the to the hospital. Uh, they took an x-ray and the bad news was I had a broken hip. So there I was lying in pain in a local hospital in Johnstown, Pennsylvania with a broken hip. But the good news was they happened to have a surgeon on call and I did need surgery um, for my hip and my leg. And they said, well, the surgeon is on call, he's ready to go, um, and we recommend that you do this surgery. So that was the natural course of things. And I thought about it and I thought, well, this is actually a pretty serious operation. And if they don't do it exactly right, I might end up with a limp or or potentially even worse. So I, I asked the doctor there, I said, out of curiosity, what would happen if instead of getting the surgery right now, which was towards the later part of the day, what if I waited till tomorrow? Would that have any uh, long-term impact? And the doctor said, well, you're going to have a pretty uncomfortable night, but it shouldn't really make that big a difference whether you get it done you know, right now or tomorrow. I said, well, if you don't mind, I think I would like to get it done tomorrow in Pittsburgh where I had a better chance of getting uh, an expert, more specifically, a specialist. So again, nothing against the local Johnstown uh, surgeon who happened to be on call, but in Pittsburgh, I was not only able to find a hip specialist, but I was able to find a hip trauma specialist who did eventually do the surgery. Anyway, he did the surgery, and I put together a team. I put together, um, there was a nutritionist, There was an acupuncturist, there was a physical therapist, and um, and with this team uh, doing their recommendations, um, I did everything I could to recover quickly, and when I went to visit the surgeon or when I went for my first checkup, he said that that was the fastest recovery he had ever seen. So why am I even talking about this? Because sometimes if you have a situation, and specifically if you have a significant IRA or a retirement plan, going to a generalist might not be your best course of action. Getting information and potentially having services from a specialist might be much more advantageous. So I would say that this webinar is for you if the majority or much of your wealth is in an IRA, a retirement plan, 401k, 403b, 457, uh, et cetera. 
and you want to protect yourself and your family from massive income taxation. Uh, it will be especially relevant for what I call leave it to beaver families, original husband, original wife, same kids. Many of the, the concepts will apply to uh, you know, other family arrangements and other heirs. Uh, on the other hand, some of the examples that I'm going to be using, um, and specifically when we get into Lang's Cascading Beneficiary Plan, is really developed for this, uh, let's call it, uh, ever-diminishing uh, American-type family, the traditional Leave it to Beaver, Ozzie and Harriet-type family. Um, and so out of curiosity, I'd love to know how many of you do fit this mold, that is, original husbands, uh, original wife, uh, same kids, and if you have grandchildren, the same grandchildren. So I'm not talking about a second spouse with kids from a prior marriage. <clears throat> I'm not talking about, you know, somebody that had a love child in the 60s. Um, I'm talking about the traditional family unit. And if you could type that in and maybe the marketing team can, lay, can uh, give me the result of that, in a couple minutes, I would sure appreciate that. <clears throat> the other people that will benefit from this uh, workshop or webinar is people who are data-driven. And what I mean by that is even if you have some preconceived notions of what you think might be the best course of action, but you are open-minded enough that if you see, and with proof, that there might be a different way of doing things that might work out better for you and your family, that you will keep an open mind and that you will consider taking action on new information. Interestingly, uh, I heard a very interesting definition of uh, learning, which was change of behavior. Uh, that is another thing that I'm very interested in, is if you are willing to take action to defend yourself and your, your family from government confiscation, because that is what is going on with the SECURE Act and the tax raises that are coming that we'll talk about. And it almost seems like they have specifically targeted um, IRA and retirement plan owners uh, in order to solve the, the deficit problems of the country. So what would be wonderful um, uh, financially uh, for you and your family. Let's say you could wave a magic wand and all of a sudden you would have a financial master plan. You could know how much money you could spend. You could know how much money you should do for a Roth conversion. You should know what the ideal gifting plan is. You would have the ideal wills and the trusts and the beneficiary designations of your retirement plan and that you could be uh, secure knowing that you have done everything that you can to protect yourself, your family, and you actually have a good plan going forward. Uh, you don't have to worry about, um, gee, did I do the right thing? Did I second guess? Because um, everything is done. Well, of course, we don't have that magic wand, but I think within two to six months, um, these types of goals can actually happen. Um, so what we're going to do is talk about some of the concepts and some of the ideas that would be part of this uh, financial master plan and financial uh, estate plan. And today we're going to talk about some of the pro proposed laws, like the For the 99.5% Act, which Bernie Sanders would 
um, which is a proposal by Bernie Sanders um, and with a, a Democratic president and a Democratic controlled Congress, we can't just ignore that. Uh, on the other hand, I'm not sure that that will pass as is. We'll talk about the implications of what will likely pass. Uh, we're going to work on the best estate plan for married couples after the election and with a Democratic Congress. We're going to also go into the SECURE Act, uh, which I think could be more accurately called the IRA Owner Confiscation Act, because that's what I believe it is. Um, and we're going to talk about shifting our focus from the taxable IRA 401k 403b SEPCIO to the tax-free Roth IRA 529 life insurance. And this shift is critical not only for income tax savings, but also estate planning. And we'll also talk about the likely reduction in the exemption amount. We'll go through a little bit of the cost of doing nothing, and then the details of what we think is the best estate plan after the SECURE Act, which is Lang's Cascading Beneficiary Plan. Um, we'll also talk a little bit about charitable trust because there are some very interesting ideas uh, regarding charitable trusts. We'll talk a little bit about a concept called who gets what. And the other thing is uh, I, you, you, you shouldn't need any incentive, but if you want any additional incentive to stay till the bloody end, we have some wonderful bonuses, both announced and unannounced. Uh, for people who are on at the end. Uh, so the who gets what idea is uh, which beneficiaries get which assets. And we're going to talk about that in the charitable world. And we're also going to talk about it between uh, beneficiaries that might have different tax brackets. Uh, what you can expect from me is I am going to be an honest, straightforward guy. Um, I am very um, <clears throat> open, uh, and I, I will try my very best, uh, both on the presentation to give you the best information I know how. And uh, I, I want to be authentic and um, transparent. That's the word I was fishing for. Um, anyway, I also want to provide you actionable information, not just theoretical stuff. And I want to be helpful whether you do business with us or not. Um, what I'm hoping that you will do is to keep an open mind, learn in the sense that learning is a change of behavior, and ultimately, and again, whether it's with me or somebody else or some combination, uh, to take action on the information that you are going to hear today. Um, if you do have a question, and we do allow, uh, I did allow time for some questions, please put them in the chat. Um, and that will go to Erica. I don't know if we're going to get to all of them. In fact, we probably won't. Uh, some of them will be left over, and we have two hours of Q&A um, at 1 Eastern, but that will also be with me, uh, Adam Yofan, and Larry Swedro. Larry Swedro, by the way, is about as good as you can get in the investment area. He's, he's truly like the, the brain trust investment guy at Buckingham. So, we're really lucky to get him. So we're going to talk a little bit about the federal estate exemptions, uh, which right now is $11.7 million. So let's just say you're single, 
and you have an $11.7 million estate and you die and you leave it to whoever you leave it to, there will be no federal estate or transfer tax. Um, in the for the 99.5% uh, legislation, which is proposed, not passed, that 11.7 would go to 3.5 million, which was the exclusion or exemption amount. Um, well, I think it was even maybe around 2014 or something like that. Um, I don't really think it's going to get, I don't think that that act is going to pass as is. But what I do think is going to happen is that even if the Democrats fail uh, to enact anything regarding taxes, or even if they just get, let's say, tax increases for the corporations, what I do think is going to happen is we're going to suffer the impact of the sunset provisions of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017. So in 2017, there was a major tax cut, but in order to, um, let's say, make it balanced or at least balanced to some degree, it was deemed a temporary cut. And what that means is in the year 2026, we are going to revert back to the old law in 2017. So the exclusion for federal estate taxes at that point was $5 million. So if nobody passes anything, the new exclusion is going to be $5 million plus inflation, or if you are married, the exclusion will be $10 million. There are some other significant tax increases that to me should be taken into account when you're coming up with your um, master financial plan. Um, one is that we could very well suffer a uh, um, cut in the favorable tax gains rates or a, a raise in the capital gains rates. Um, right now, the proposal is mainly high income earners. On the other hand, there are, there's some significant talk that it will come down to lower income earners. The other thing that I think is actually more certain and maybe more relevant and actually is maybe a greater uh, reason for taking action is I believe that we are going to lose what is called the step up in basis. I've been warning about people about this for years. Uh, this is when at your death rather than uh, your heirs getting a new basis so, so that they could sell whatever stock or piece of real estate or whatever you leave them and have no capital gain that they would take on your basis. And if they sold it, they would have a capital gain. Or in the case of real estate, maybe they would have a gain and depreciation recapture. And I think that this is just a matter of time. Um, I, I genuinely believe that they're going to pass this before you pass. And the reason why that is important is because many, many investors are holding on to assets that probably their advisors and others would say, hey, no, you're not well diversi diversified enough. Um, this isn't the right amount. This isn't the right allocation. You have too much money in this one particular stock. Oh, gee, I don't want to sell it because then there'll be a big capital gain. If I just hang on to it and I die, then there won't be any capital gain. I don't think that that kind of thinking can apply anymore because I do think that the uh, step up in basis is going to go away. Um, 
So what is some of the impact of the new administration? <clears throat> I think the problems that we have with the deficit, um, I think, point to a higher income tax. Uh, right now, uh, President Biden has said that he is not going to raise taxes for people making less than $400,000. But um, there are other ways to increase taxes. The SECURE Act is, to me, a massive income tax uh, raise. Uh, we're going to be getting into the details of that. And what I would say is perhaps one of the biggest mistakes that many investors and IRA and retirement plan owners make is they're not concentrating on the most important problem that they have. So they might be, you know, spending all kinds of time getting the investments exactly right, not that that isn't important, or the asset allocation exactly right, um, or trying to uh, figure out what's going to happen with the stock market or a particular stock or investments. And I'm not, again, I'm not downplaying that, but frankly, we don't have much control over that. And it's not clear to me that that kind of thinking is going to significantly move the needle in terms of wealth and wealth preservation for you and your family. If you have a big IRA, and when I say IRA, I'm also including retirement, 401k, 403b, SEP, KEO, et cetera. If you have this large amount of money that has not yet been subject to income tax, you know that someday somebody's going to pay income taxes on that money, and it might be you, and it might be your spouse, and it might be your kids, and it might be your grandkids. But unless you leave it to charity, somebody is going to, going to pay income taxes on it. And for most of the people on this webinar, and I would imagine you, your biggest problem, if you will, or financial problem is actually going to be the income taxes on that large IRA accumulation. So, you know, that is the area that we really need to concentrate on, and that's what we are going to do today. Now, yesterday we covered some of the, what I would call, uh, living strategies. We talked about Roth IRA conversions. Um, and uh, of course, to me, retirement and estate planning is really one continuum. Um, on the other hand, today, we're going to really talk more about the estate planning section. Um, again, Bernie Sanders for the 99.5%. He's He, he would take the 11.7 million, reduce it to 3.5 million. He would reduce the gift tax exemption down to a million. And by the way, the, the, he would also raise the estate tax um, rates, the highest rate uh, he, that he's proposing is 65%. And that doesn't include the income tax on the IRA. Now, to be fair, that's at a, most likely a much higher in, uh, asset level than you have. But even at 40%, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty brutal. Um, the For the 99% Act uh, also attacks some of the um, tax strategies that we have been using for people with significant after-tax dollars. Um, probably not as relevant for most people here, because most people here are really IRA and retirement plan heavy. But if you are not, uh, some of the strategies that we have been using, like grantor trusts, minority interests and marketability discounts and generation skipping tax exemptions, uh, all those are under siege, if you will. Who knows? Is it going to pass? This is what I would say. We have massive deficits. 
Um, President Biden's spending plans are very ambitious. Somebody's going to have to pay for this. And in one form or another, I think we're going to have some very significant tax increases, both on the income tax side. And again, if nothing else, taxes go way up in 2026. And on the estate tax side, again, the exclusion on the Tax Cut and Jobs Act goes from 11.7 million to 5 million plus inflation. So what can be done to preserve, you know, what, whatever you can um, from these massive income taxa taxation and the SECURE Act? Well, we are going to provide the solution today, but if I went right out and just said, okay, here's what you should do without going through why and without talking about the impact of the SECURE Act, which is a major game changer, I would say a government confiscation of the wealth of IRA and retirement plan owners who were hoping to leave a substantial legacy to their children. So we're, in a con we're going to con uh, concentrate on the concepts, then we'll see uh, what the reception of this plan is, because this is not wild cowboy stuff, this is very well accepted, and then we will get into the nitty gritty details of the Lang's Cascading Beneficiary Plan. Okay, a couple bedrock principles, and if you have been following me, you might have been hearing this uh, for literally more than 20 years. Um, don't pay taxes now, pay taxes later, except for the Roth IRA and Roth IRA conversions. And I'll maybe add going from taxable to tax-free uh, world, but the, the simple one is don't pay taxes now, pay taxes later, except Roth IRAs and Roth IRA conversions. This will apply in the accumulation stage while you are still working. This will apply in the distribution stage when you have retired and the question is, which dollars do you spend first? And it will apply in the estate planning stage when you are planning for your estate, which is what we're going to concentrate on today. All right, so what does that have to do with the SECURE Act? And what is the SECURE Act? So why don't we talk about what the SECURE Act is, what the old law was, and the difference between an IRA and retirement plan owner dying uh, either before the SECURE Act was enacted and effective and dying afterwards. Um, so in summary, the SECURE Act says, uh, subject to exceptions, which we're going to get to, that if you die with an IRA, your beneficiary must withdraw that IRA within 10 years of your death and pay income taxes on all that money. So let's just, to use round numbers, say you have a million dollars in your IRA and you die and you leave it to your family. Uh, spouses are one of the exceptions, but their basic, your family is going to have to pay income taxes on that million dollars within 10 years. Now that is a massive income tax compared to what they, uh, the old law was, the old law, which was commonly called the stretch IRA, meant that your heirs could to some degree defer or stretch or put off the taxation of that inherited IRA for, to some extent, their entire lives. So let's just say for discussion's sake that they were uh, about 45 years old at your death. 
The old law would say they would go to publication 590, find out the life expectancy factor, and let's just, I don't know exactly what it is, but let's just say that it was uh, 40 years. So they, they would take to, to determine the minimum required distribution of the inherited IRA, they would take one over 40 and uh, multiply that times the balance of the inherited IRA. So that's about two and a half percent. Then the next year, they would take one over 39 times the balance uh, of the inherited IRA. That, again, would be the minimum required distribution of the inherited IRA. The year after that is one over 37. In the meantime, that inherited IRA continued to grow income tax deferred, not free. Now, if it was a Roth, it was the same distribution pattern, but that money would come out income tax free. All right. So let's say that, um, you know, you, you died uh, while this law was in effect. And let's assume for discussion's sake that your beneficiary was 46 years old. And let's also assume that your beneficiary did this strategy of taking the minimum required distribution of the inherited IRA. All right. So where would that put your beneficiary, given certain assumptions about tax rates and spending and et cetera, et cetera. And if you look at the chart, you'll see a solid green line. And that would be the trajectory of the uh, balance of the money for your child who gets a million dollar inherited IRA, given certain pretty reasonable assumptions. And what it shows is by the time your child is 86 years old, even after taking annual distributions for many, many years, your child would still have more than $2 million. On the other hand, after the SECURE Act, which is the law of the land now, if you die with an IRA, your 46-year-old, again, using a 40, I'm trying to compare apples to apples, your 46-year-old beneficiary would have to take all that money out within 10 years after your death. So instead of having $2 million, your beneficiary, uh, when they are in their mid-80s, would be broke. So we're talking about the difference between your child having $2 million versus your child being broke. By the way, that is a pure demonstration of don't pay taxes now, pay taxes later, even after you're gone. Because in the first example, in the green solid line under the old law, we were paying taxes later. With the serrated line, we are paying taxes within 10 years of the IRA owner's death. And just the timing of when you pay taxes is the difference between your kid being broke and your kid having $2 million. Now, I'd love to say that my solution is going to put you back to where your child would have been before the SECURE Act. Uh, very frankly, it isn't that good but it will hopefully get you somewhere between where it used to be and your child being broke. Um, and I really try to stay away from politics in my professional life, but I really think that this law is miserable. Um, and I think it's kind of a bait and switch because for years, Congress was telling us, we're going to give you very favorable tax treatment if you put money in your IRAs and your 401ks and your 403bs, et cetera. We're not only going to give you favorable tax treatment, but we're going to give your heirs favorable tra tax treatment in what was known as the stretch IRA. 
So how did many people, uh, probably most of the people on this webinar, respond? Okay, well, I'm a prudent type person. Um, uh, the government is willing to give me this great tax break. I will uh, cut back on my expenses in order to maximize the amount of money that I can put in my retirement plan. Um, hopefully there was an employer match also. And I'm going to kind of concentrate on building my IRA and my 401k plan as high as possible because it's a great thing to save taxes, not only for me and my spouse, but after I'm gone, uh, this will be a wonderful legacy for my kids. So you played the game under the rules that uh, Congress dictated. Then late in the game, so after you've done this for 20, 30, 40 years, Congress says, ah, we changed our minds. We think that we're going to pull the rug right from under your feet, and we're going to tax the you-know-what out of your kids or your beneficiaries. We're going to make them pay income taxes on the inherited IRA within 10 years of your death. And I really don't like that at all. I really think it's not quite an ex post facto law, um, but I really think it is unfair. And I'm not saying that we don't need the federal government doesn't need some money from somewhere, but doing it on the backs of IRA and retirement plan owners and their families who have been encouraged to accumulate money because it would be uh, beneficial from a tax standpoint, I really think is wrong. All right. So the good news is, is that there are some critical exceptions to the 10-year income tax acceleration at death. Uh, the most important exception is the surviving spouse. So if you die with an IRA, um, you can have your spouse, and let's say you name your spouse as the beneficiary, your spouse can roll that money into their own IRA. We prefer something called a trustee to trustee tr transfer, which I won't get into. Uh, actually, basically, it's just they never accept possession of the IRA. It goes from, um, let's say, husband, who's more likely to die first, IRA directly to the wife's IRA, and she would have her own minimum required distribution based on as if it was hers in the first place, which to oversimplify would be to take her life expectancy, let's say at 72, somewhere around 17 years, and the life expectancy of somebody deemed 10 years younger, uh, to oversimplify again, maybe uh, uh, 27 years, that would become the divisor. Let's round off and call it 25, divide that into the million dollar IRA and start at 4%. And then it gets a little bit higher each year. So that is one of the very useful um, exceptions to the SECURE Act. Uh, qualifying charitable trusts is also an exception, and that is a very important exception. We're going to talk about uh, how that exception might benefit you and your family. Another exception is if your beneficiary is not more than 10 years younger than you. Uh, so obviously that would not be a, a child or grandchild. It might be an unmarried partner. It might be uh, a sibling, um, but that is also an exception to the 10-year rule of the SECURE Act. Another exception that isn't all that important, well, it's not important at all to probably the vast majority of listeners, but is critically important to um, some, some, of the, some of us, including me, 
is if your beneficiary is disabled or chronically ill. Um, my daughter is disabled. And the good news about the SECURE Act is that my daughter, because she is disabled, and by the way, there is a difficult proof element, uh, which, is, which, will, <clears throat> which is very important, uh, which I talk much more about. By the way, if you, if you have a disabled beneficiary, uh, you really need specialized planning. You really do. This is something that you know, touches my heart because if you have a disabled child or grandchild, that is typically one of your major worries in life. It certainly is for me and my wife. Of course, um, I don't want to claim expertise on the care of your disabled child after you're gone in terms of physically where do they go, who takes care of them, et cetera, et cetera. But the area that we do have expertise is making sure that that child is provided for financially. And one of the ways to do that is with a special needs trust and taking advantage of one of, of this very important exception to the um, SECURE Act that will allow the disabled beneficiary or the trust for the benefit of the disabled beneficiary to stretch or to defer the income taxes on the inherited IRA or to stretch or defer the uh, non-taxable distributions of the inherited Roth IRA over their lifetime. Uh, there's also a partial exception for minors. Uh, there will be a suspension of the minimum required distribution, but as soon as that minor reaches majority, maybe 18 or 21, boom, it kicks in again. Uh, there's also an exception uh, if that um, child, well, um, by the way, this is just child, children, not uh, grandchildren. Um, there's also an exception if that child is actually in college and there's some additional deferral. But at the end of that period, boom, it, out, it all comes out in 10 years. None of this, you know, 30, 40, 50 year tax deferral that we used to enjoy. So what is the solution to some of these vexing problems? And quick history of the solution. Um, I read about something that was kind of the key concept of the solution uh, in the early 90s. And I actually started implementing it in the estate plans that I was drafting for my clients and specifically for my IRA and retirement plan heavy clients. And even though I didn't have much support in the literature, and even though there were very few people doing it, I thought it was a great idea. And I wasn't waiting for somebody to give me permission or to somebody to give it its blessing, but I was just doing it. And in 1998, actually, I wrote the article in 1997. Um, it was a peer-reviewed article. And the main topic of the uh, article was Roth IRAs and Roth IRA conversions. And I wanted to have it peer-reviewed by the best peer-reviewed journal uh, in the world for, uh, well, or at least in the country, for uh, um, taxes and retirement plans. And the American Institute of CPA has a peer review journal called the Tax Advisor. That might be the equivalent of the New England Journal of Medicine uh, in the medical field. So anyway, I went to the uh, tax advisor. I said, hey, these Roth IRA conversions, I think are going to be really critical. And again, um, we, we talked much more about Roth IRA conversions yesterday. And I believe that that link will still be live for at least a day or two. Uh, and if you didn't see that, I would highly encourage you to watch that webinar also. 
But anyway, the tax advisor said, okay, we'll, we'll you know, go ahead, write the article. We'll peer review it um, when you're done with it. And if we think it's worthy of publication, we will. So I thought, great. And I wrote the article and I thought, you know, just for the heck of it, I'm going to put in a description of the type of estate planning that I am doing for my clients that, again, I didn't really have much support for. Anyway, the peer reviewers loved it. They actually asked me to expand that section of the article, which I did. And that was kind of the beginning of, let's say, a broader recognition of what is now known as the Lang's Cascading Beneficiary Plan. Um, I did a blog in the year 2001 when there was an additional law that I won't get into, but it actually enhanced the benefit of the Lang's Cascading Beneficiary Plan. I didn't even know that Jane Brian Quinn was one of my email subscribers. Anyway, she loved the plan. Uh, she gave me a call. We actually spent, I'd say somewhere between four and six hours on the phone going through all the implications of the estate plan. The result, it was just a one-page story. By the way, that's old school journalism. Four to six hours, one page of out, output. Um, excuse me, uh, Jane is basically retired now, uh, but her and Jonathan Clemens of the Wall Street Journal, they were old school, great financial journalists who really did their homework as well as anybody I know um, in the financial reporting area. Um, and I've worked with a lot of financial reporters of one form or another. There, there's a bunch of other good ones out there, but those two were really outstanding. But anyway, Jane Bryan Quinn loved it. It appeared in Newsweek, and then additional people picked it up. Uh, it was in the Wall Street Journal. It was in the it was in Kiplinger's. Um, Wall Street Journal did a follow up story on it. Uh, I included it in my books, Retire Secure. Uh, we did three editions of Retire Secure, and we had it in all three. We put it in our most recent. Uh, book, which by the way, that is a hint that is going to be a hard copy uh, of our most recent book, which I don't seem to have near me, which I was going to hold up. But anyway, um, beating the new death tax. So it was in all those. Um, and we had testimonials uh, from, again, Charles Schwab, Larry King, 60 other people about that book, of which the cascading beneficiary plan was a major portion. All right, so we, we have been drafting these in practice since the mid-90s. Now, our clients, interestingly enough, do live longer, and we could actually prove that. And I'd like to say, oh, the reason our clients live longer is because they're so happy, they're so relaxed, they don't have to worry about money anymore. So that additional sense of well-being just allows them to keep living, living, no, 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 no. I'd love to say that, but the reality is, is that people that tend to take care of things in one area and are smart about their decisions in one area tend to be smart and take, make good decisions in another area. So for example, the vast majority of our clients don't smoke cigarettes. The vast majority of our clients wear their seatbelts. Uh, they have at least a moderate amount of exercise. They do some things that are good for their health and they also do things that are smart for their finances, um, whether it is the cascading beneficiary plan, whether it is a well-diversified portfolio of uh, enhanced index funds, whether it is coming up with the ideal Roth IRA conversion plan and the gifting plan and what we call the financial master plan. 
But anyway, um, the same type of people that tend to take care of their health uh, uh, seek out, and this is going to sound a little bit self-serving, but sometimes find the best advisor for their situation, which is IRA heavy, and they work for us. So anyway, the only point is, is that our clients do live longer, but they can only live so much longer. I typically meet people in their 60s and 70s, uh, sometimes older, sometimes younger, but that's probably where most of the people that I meet uh, on a professional basis are. And that was also true in the mid-90s, 20 years ago. So many of these people that we have actually uh, done the plan that I am describing have actually since passed. So we have a lot of experience not only drafting these plans, but doing the estate administration of these plans after people have passed. And the result of the plan has been the protection or overprotection of the surviving spouse. And that is consistent with what people want. I don't think anybody in the history of the world ever came to the, the estate planner and said, my goal was to have my grandchildren so stinking rich, they never have to work a day in their life. No, what, what they say is the most important thing is to make sure that both I and my spouse live comfortably for the rest of our lives. After the first of us pass, the second most important thing is that the survivor lives comfortably for the rest of his or her life. And then only after that are taxes going to be a major consideration, children, etc. So first we have satisfied the primary goal, which is protection of the surviving spouse. All right. On the other hand, um, particularly under the old law, where the beneficiary could stretch the inherited I over, IRA over their lifetime, it often made sense to have some money going to kids. And we had saved hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes even more um, in taxes if we were to name children or even grandchildren as the beneficiary of the, of the IRA. So anyway, but how do you do this? Well, there, there is a solution which I'm getting to. Uh, I will also say that I have taught this solution to thousands of attorneys, uh, CPAs, financial advisors. I used to, um, when I first came out with this, um, or I started getting publicity about this and Roth IRA conversions, I was getting $10,000 a day to teach these concepts to, again, financial advisors, attorneys, and CPAs. And I've been in front of tens of thousands of consumers. And if you count my books in digital outreach, you know, we're really talking about hundreds of thousands of people. So this is not, you know, some fluke idea that isn't tested. Um, this has been around a long time. Um, I, I'd say that in certain ways, it's even more valuable than under the old law. But this solution does have legs. It does have a lot of backup. And by the way, it also has a lot of imitators. And I don't want to say that that I changed the field because to me, after you hear it, it's going to make so much sense. But I will say that there are a lot of a lot of estate attorneys who are doing things much closer to what this plan is than they ever were before. It's still the minority and actually the great minority. But uh, I think when you hear it and understand it, you'll go, yeah, this makes sense. All right. So what is the biggest problem that IRA and retirement plan owners have when they are developing their estate plan? 
Excuse me. Well, the biggest problem that I would say is uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen. There is a major difference in the recommendations that we made between somebody dying in December 31, 2019, and somebody dying in January 1, 2020. The advice that we would give to the family would be significantly different, and it was because there was a major change in the tax law that was effective for people dying on January 1, 2020 or later. Well, who's to say that that's going to be the last major tax change that we are going to have? In fact, I would say, if anything, there will be likely several major tax changes uh, during your lifetime before you die. And who knows what the law is going to be at the time when you die? The other thing that we don't know is, let's assume that you are married for the moment. We don't know who's going to die first. You know, usually when I'm meeting with people, and particularly, uh, let's call it old school marriages, uh, where the, the husband uh, is usually at least as old or maybe a little bit older than their spouse. And we always, everybody talks as if the husband is going to die first because A, they're older, or even if they're the same age, um, men don't live as long as you women. So we tend to naturally assume that the guy is going to die first. Well, it doesn't always work that way. Uh, and the planning would be much different if we knew who was going to die first. But the truth is we don't. The other thing that we don't know is we don't know how much money is going to be left. Most of my clients at their retirement, they were just hoping that there would be enough money to um, be able to live comfortably uh, in the way that they want uh, between retirement and when they and their spouse died. But actually what has happened with most of them is uh, partly because of a good market and partly because of what's called relative frugality and um, watching expenses, that their assets actually grew and sometimes even doubled uh, between retirement and death. On the other hand, I have clients, and I certainly understand it because uh, it is just natural, to fear the worst. You know, what if there's a catastrophic catastrophic illness? What if the market goes down 40% and it doesn't recover? Uh, what if we need money for a family emergency, et cetera, et cetera? So the other thing that we don't know is we don't know how much money is going to be left at both the first and at the second death. And when I say first death, I'm talking about the death of the first of the married couple, and the second death would be at the death of the second uh, member of the married couple. More uncertainty. What are the needs of the survivors? Uh, maybe you have two kids now, one's doing really well, one's not doing well. Who knows, between now and the time of your death, maybe the one that's doing well is not doing well, and the one that isn't doing well is doing well. Maybe one has some grandchildren, maybe one doesn't, maybe one has a grandchild that uh, has some special needs or, or whatever it is. There is all these um, areas of uncertainty. We don't know what the tax rates are going to be. I don't even know what the tax rates are going to be later this year, let alone what, what they're going to be two years from now, five years from now, 10 or 20 years from now, or the year of your death. Uh, we don't know where you're going to die. What state will you be a resident in? You know, maybe you're in Pennsylvania or, you know, Erica went through all the different states where people are. 
Well, who's to say that you're going to die as a resident of that state? I have a lot of clients who are frankly moving out of their home state to be closer to their children. And by the way, this is anecdotal, but it seems that many are moving to where their daughters, not their sons, interestingly enough, where their daughters are having a child that is your grandchild and people end up being residents of states that they would have never expected to be a resident of. And there are significant differences between the state, dif the state tax differences, both in inheritance taxes and in income taxes. Uh, we don't know what state your survivors are going to be in. Maybe your one of your children get a job in one particular state or uh, um, and that's where they end up living. Uh, maybe the job doesn't work out and they move to another state. Um, who, who knows? Who knows? So we have, the point is we have so much uncertainty about so many areas. Um, and we, you know, if you, if you know anything about us, you know we are very quantitative and we love to do projections. And that is part of the master plan. Um, how much money can you safely spend? How much of a Roth IRA conversion should you do? Um, what is the best gifting strategy? What is going to happen not only during your and your spouse's life, but what's going to happen 10, 20, 40 years after both of you are gone? And we love doing projections. And we think that doing these projections that help us develop a financial master plan are going to be very valuable in making great decisions. But unfortunately, every projection we've ever done is wrong. Something other than what we expected happened. We always thought the husband was going to die first, the wife dies first. We thought the market was going to do just okay, the market does great. We thought that the one kid was going to do really well, and now he's divorced and broke, and the other kid that was broke is now doing really well. Uh, all these things that we thought were going to happen didn't happen, and that actually made, um, if we had fixed in stone what we thought was going to happen and relied solely on that information, we would not have optimized uh, our client's retirement and estate plan. So again, what are some of the things that people want to do? They want to protect both spouses. They want to cut taxes. And um, only after that do they protect yourself, protect your spouse. Only after that um, are they interested in um, saving taxes. And by the way, if that's you, your first interest is, is pro providing for you and your spouse. Your second interest is providing for your surviving spouse. And then only after that uh, are saving taxes for the kids your highest priority. If you could put a Y in the chat, I would certainly appreciate that because that will give me a a flavor of um, if we have the type of audience that I suspect that we do have. But again, I could be wrong too. So let's talk about some of the advantages of naming your spouse as the primary beneficiary of your IRA. And, and I'm, I'm going to take this a step further and say make your spouse the primary beneficiary of not just your IRA, but your after-tax dollars, your annuities, if you have any, um, your uh, Roth IRA, uh, whatever assets you have. Uh, specifically in the IRA area, first, we have a tax-free rollover. 
meaning that your spouse, and I mentioned this earlier, your spouse could take the inherited IRA and roll that into his or her IRA, which receives very favorable tax treatment. There is an unlimited marital deduction, meaning you can leave a billion dollars to your spouse and there is no federal transfer tax on that, on leaving that money to your spouse. And most states also have an unlimited marital deduction. Um, by the way, I was practicing when we didn't have an unlimited marital deduction at the federal level, meaning um, I remember very well a, a, a state cases where people left money to their spouse and there was a very significant estate tax. And I also remember uh, when there was a transfer tax or an inheritance tax at the state level. Specifically, I was practicing in Pennsylvania and up until Governor Ridge, who has since passed, um, implemented legislation, there was a tax on leaving money to your spouse. Now, though, and I, it might be all states, but certainly most states have unlimited marital, so you can leave money to your spouse, no transfer taxes, and no immediate income taxes. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the spouse is one of the exceptions to the SECURE Act. So the spouse gets the favorable old tax treatment, meaning they can roll it into their own IRA and take minimum required distributions based on their life expectancy and somebody deemed 10 years younger. Um, in the case of a Roth IRA, there is no minimum required distributions for either you or if you die and leave your Roth IRA to your spouse, there is no minimum required distributions for your spouse. Under the old law, um, your children could have stretched this IRA uh, over their lifetimes. That is gone. But there are still, again, some exceptions for young children to have a partial deferral. And that might actually be very useful. Another reason why you might want to leave some IRA money to children is that the children might be in a lower tax bracket than your surviving spouse. And remember, if you die, your surviving spouse will now have to start filing as a single taxpayer. So their tax rates are going to go way up. So they're probably, if they inherit all your money, they have a big minimum required distribution and social security and the income from the investments, maybe a pension. They might be pushed into a very high tax bracket where your children that might be uh, getting started in their career or wherever your children are financially, they might be in a much lower tax bracket. And if you don't need the money, it might make sense to have some of that money go to the children that will be taxed in a lower tax bracket. The other reason we might want to leave money to children is because they might need the money. Um, and the spouse doesn't need everything that was left to him or her. Um, I would say one of the biggest problems or one of the biggest mistakes that I see, and by the way, I spent to some extent a lifetime fighting it, but let me tell you what would not surprise me at all about your particular situation. Let's say that you're pretty smart. One way or the other, you <clears throat> do at least reasonably well on investments. You do, well, actually most people have pretty botched estate plans, but let's even grant that somehow, whether we, whether you get help from us or somehow 
you get the estate plan right, which again is pretty rare when the underlying asset is IRA. But let's assume that that happens. Let's assume that you get the Roth IRA conversions, uh, et cetera, just right. Well, what people often don't get right is they end up with dying with too much money. And what happens, and particularly it's much worse under the SECURE Act, where the kids have to pay income taxes on the entire inherited IRA within 10 years of your death, we end up accumulating, 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 dying. There's this massive tax, and then your kids get what's left, and your kids might be in their 60s um, when they get that money far longer or far later in life than that money could be so useful. So just think of yourselves, maybe in your 60s or 70s, and let's say you inherited a half a million dollars today. Honestly, is that really going to change your life radically? I would say a lot of my clients, it, it wouldn't make that big of a difference. Now think of yourself maybe 25, 30 years ago. Would that or even a smaller amount of money made a significant difference in your life? Wow, that would have been life changing. So sometimes it just makes sense and forget about taxes for a minute to get some money to your kids earlier than at the second death of the IRA and retirement plan owner and their spouse. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to have money going to kids. It might make sense to have money going to grandchildren. Maybe they need it for education. Maybe your kids don't need the money. Maybe your kids have creditors. Maybe you have a no good son-in-law or daughter-in-law that you don't want to see get your money. And one way of getting around that is to leave at least a portion of that money to your grandchildren. So we have all these, um, let's say, advantages and disadvantages of these three generations being your spouse, your kids, and your grandkids. And most people say, well, first, I want the money to go to my spouse. Second, uh, I want the money to go to my children. And third, I would want the money to go to my grandchildren. And again, if you could type Y in the chat area, I would certainly appreciate that. So I know what uh, the audience's um, situation is. So let's talk about a few standard solutions. Let me tell you what you very well might have right now. And it's a heck of a lot better than nothing. And I call them I love you wills. I leave everything to you. You leave everything to me. If something happens to both of us, it goes to our kids equally. If something happens to one of our kids before uh, something happens to us, the amount that would have gone to the child, to that particular child or that predeceased child would go into a trust for the benefit of his or her own kids, assuming they have them. So again, you know, simple wills, by the way, most people don't even, even if they have that, they don't get the IRA provisions right, but that's at least a reasonable start. Then there's, you know, sp special situations. One kid has more money, one kid has less money, uh, one kid's in a higher tax bracket, one kid's in a lower tax bracket, one kid needs the money more, one kid doesn't. Um, there's in one case, we have a no good daughter-in-law. We want to get around that problem. So sometimes, you know, we, we think and we say, okay, well, we're not going to do the standard. I love you wills, 
but we're going to, going to predict or we're going to try to predict circumstances uh, in the future and we're going to draft our estate plan in conjunction with those assumptions. So we just take our best guess and we draft that. And then theoretically, the answer to that is if the situation changes, redo your documents. Well, people don't do that. You're supposed to review your wills every two or three years. I will tell you, you know, we've done close to 3,000 wills. Hardly anybody reviews them every two or three years. It just doesn't, just doesn't happen. So are you ready for the solution? What is the solution to this perplexing problem of not knowing what is going to happen? All right. And this, again, is going to apply to what I call leave it to beaver couples. But the concept will apply to far beyond leave it to beaver uh, couples. And the solution is don't decide. Huh? That's easy. Don't decide. It's too tough to figure out who gets what when we don't know what's going to happen. So how do you draft a document if you're not going to fix in stone what is going to happen? What you can do, and if you using the appropriate language and the appropriate concept, is you let your surviving spouse decide who gets what, and you don't have them him or her decide now. You have them him you have him or her decide within nine months after the death of the first couple. That way, your surviving spouse is going to know a lot more. They're going to know what the tax situation is. They're going to know how much money is left. They're going to know much better what the needs of the kids and the grandkids are and their own needs and how much money they need and the tax implications and the tax laws, et cetera. And obviously, hope, or at least hopefully, they are getting help uh, from whether it's a CPA or an attorney or financial advisor or in our case, a team of, that consists of all of the above. And they're going to be able to make much better decisions later than we can now. So this solution protects your spouse because we're going to name your spouse as the primary beneficiary. But we're going to, going to leave the possibility of money going to kids or grandkids through the even though the spouse is alive, in the traditional document, the spouse, the I love you wills, the spouse gets everything, right? Well, we're going to allow the possibility to have money going to the children. We're also going to leave the possibility of having money going to the grandchildren, um, even if your children are alive. So this is going to be a fantastically flexible plan. And it is called the Cascading Beneficiary Plan. If you were to look in the literature, I call it the Lang's Cascading Beneficiary Plan. And the cascade, if you will, is number one, you name your spouse. Number two, you name your kids. Number three, you name trust for grandchildren, just like a traditional I love you. But here's the thing. You give the spouse the right to, the legal word is to disclaim IRA and or a portion of the IRA, or the Roth IRA, or a portion of the Roth IRA, or the after-tax dollars, or a portion of the after-tax dollars, or the life insurance, or a portion of it, or the annuity, or a portion of it, or the house, or whatever assets uh, you have, you give the surviving spouse the right to disclaim all or a portion or none 
And then you say in the document, I give my spouse the right to disclaim. If my spouse disclaims any or all of this, of any of these particular assets, it goes to typically children equally, not always. Then you give each child the right to either keep their share or to disclaim what they're inheriting to a trust for the benefit of their children. The concept of disclaimer is not anything that I invented. Nobody can force you to accept a bequest. And usually, if you say, well, I don't want it, where it goes uh, sometimes is difficult. So we, what we want to do is be crystal clear. If your spouse doesn't want it, or if your kid doesn't want it, or, or a portion of it, this is where it goes. And we say who is next in line, and then who is next in line after that. And we specifically give people the right to disclaim. And you have nine months after the death of the IRA owner and to make that decision. So I always, when, when, you know, when we hear of a client dying, the first thing that we tell them is don't do anything. Um, people, of course, are always interested in um, paying some of the bills, the funeral bill, etc. And I always say, wait, those guys can wait a little bit. Because if you take control of a particular asset, you might lose the right to disclaim. So the best thing to do is to do nothing until you get a plan. Now, sometimes there's maybe smaller accounts that you could um, pay some bills with, but usually I'm not all that worried about the very, very quick payment of bills, or maybe there's a separate account that you can do that because I don't want to blow the possibility of disclaiming. And if you take possession, and one of the ways of taking possession is by actually writing a check even just for a portion of that money or taking a distribution from an IRA, et cetera, then you're going to lose the right to disclaim. And this becomes really important. It is a system. Uh, it should be considered for virtually all your assets, your IRA, your Roth IRA, your after-tax dollars, your annuities, your house, your... Give the uh, surviving spouse and the planners that are helping post-mortem planning for the surviving spouse, all the flexibility that they need in order to get the most for the family. And we recommend that it's be included in your wills and your revocable trust and your IRA beneficiary designations and all your the beneficiary designations of your retirement plan, your Roth IRAs, your annuities, etc. And by the way, again, this isn't left field you know, we've had endorsements of, of my books by Charles Schwab, Jane Bryden Quinn, Ed Slott, Burton Malkiel, Roger Ibbotson, 60 other uh, financial luminaries. So this is not wild stuff. Now, we have a whole bunch more of uh, very good information, but this might be a good time to pause for a second and say, hey, gee, this might be an interesting idea. And even though Jim isn't a licensed attorney in my particular state, he can work uh, with my uh, attorney in my state or perhaps find one uh, that is open to these types of ideas um, or uh, somehow one way or another get this type of plan implemented for me because it just makes so much sense. 
And for whatever it's worth, Erica had mentioned that, you know, for many years we have been doing workshops in Western Pennsylvania. And usually what tended to happen, as soon as people heard this idea, they go, yep, that makes sense. We can save some money in taxes. We can make much better decisions later. Um, if you are interested in talking with me, and by the way, there is, let's say we have two business models. One is a $10,000 mass financial master plan and included in that financial master plan is uh, what happens to your um, estate and your IRA and your estate plan. And again, if you're outside of Pennsylvania, we're not allowed to draft, but we are allowed to advise, we are allowed to review, we are allowed to provide sample uh, language. <clears throat> the other, let's say, model that we have is a more traditional asset under ma management model, but the difference between our model, which is, well, first I'll describe this, the typical one, is you have a money manager or a wealth advisor, and he or she is managing the money, and they're hopefully getting the asset allocation right, hopefully getting the asset location right. And let's assume that they are doing these things, and let's say that the charge is 1%, hopefully less, if it's more than a million dollars, often more, by the way. Um, well, in our model, we have a wonderful uh, money manager who's going to be around for the Q&A today that starts at one o'clock. His name is Adam Yofan. He works with Buckingham and uh, partly uh, with the guidance of Larry Swedro, who's a financial guru. So he does all that. And I would say that he himself, and he, by the way, has his own stuff uh, in terms of planning. He, they have a 40-step process that they go through, and there's certainly overlap with what we do. So he does what he does. We do the financial master plan. We run the numbers. How much money can you spend? How much? What is the best long-term Roth IRA conversion? What is the best estate plan? What needs to happen in order to make this estate plan a reality? And again, uh, that is something that we can and do charge $10,000 for. And by the way, at the moment, we have a several month waiting list just for that process. Uh, with the assets under management, that is included in the 1% that you pay the money manager. If you have already heard enough say, yep, I want to talk with Jim, you might want to sign up for the uh, consultation. We call it a retired consultation uh, with me right now. We'll talk more about that at the end. But frankly, we are taking people, well, first, we're interested in asset under management clients. They get priority. They very frankly, are our permanent clients that we interact with and frankly make money from every year, but then also um, on a basis of people who are interested in the $10,000 um, financial master plan. Uh, there's a number of criteria of who we do first, but part of it is whoever signs up first. Uh, and you would be ahead of people that will sign up later on today, uh, um, both at the end of this session and at the end of the uh, Q&A with Larry Swojo and Adam uh, Yofan. So um, hopefully uh, the team will put up a little box that you could go to to sign up with that consultation uh, for me. I will tell you genuinely our office is overwhelmed. Uh, we do have a several month waiting list. Um, and it is possible in the future that we're going to suspend these $10,000 jobs 
This isn't hype. This isn't, oh, you better hurry up or you're not going to get in. But that is a very real possibility. Um, so again, if you want to schedule your retire secure consultation, that is something that you could do right now. It, uh, in effect, is cutting in line, and I'm having a minor problem moving my PowerPoint forward. Um, uh, Eric, I don't know if I did that or if he did that, but anyway, if you're interested in signing up, uh, do sign up. And again, for Pennsylvania residents, we can actually draft all the documents, which frankly, in the ideal world, we would be able to draft documents for everybody. But um, we don't live in an ideal world. And assuming that you're not a PA resident, but you like this plan, then we get involved in making that happen. But we have to do it in conjunction with an attorney who is licensed in your state. Um, the the investment for that master plan is ten thousand uh, dollars. In certain cases, we actually um, will give you a higher price based on uh, added complexity. To be fair, that's relatively rare. Usually, they're ten thousand dollars. And I should mention that the minimum for assets under management—not that we don't ever make exceptions—but the general rule is the minimum is a million dollars for us and our team. And if you don't, if you say, hey, there's no way I'm going to pay Lang and that team $10,000, there's no way I'm going to have them manage a million dollars, I would appreciate that if you didn't sign up because I want to preserve these spots um, for people who are interested in doing business. Okay, so back, back to the main uh, the main event, if you will, back back to the substance. I promised just a couple minutes of pitch. I did a little pitch right there. I'll do a little bit of how we might be able to work together at the end. But let's go back to the substance of the program. And some of these things are very important. So the SECURE Act has actually changed the type of trust that we draft. Now, trust, 20-second story. So I'm reading the Wall Street Journal, and it says, you know, most attorneys botch the trust when the underlying asset is the IRA. It has to be done exactly right. There's five specific conditions that have to be in the trust, Hardly any attorneys know how to do this thing right. So if your beneficiary, um, if, if your underlying asset is an IRA, we recommend that you leave the IRA directly to the beneficiary without, without a trust. And I'm thinking that's the stupidest advice I ever heard. What if the beneficiary needs a trust? What if the beneficiary is a spendthrift? What if the beneficiary has the no-good son-in-law? What if the beneficiary is young, like a grandchild, and just needs somebody responsible to take care of the money? Uh, what if the beneficiary is a special needs beneficiary and needs a special needs trust? That's just terrible advice. And I get all flustered and I write a letter, Dear Wall Street Journal, I really didn't like the piece of advice that you gave. Blah, 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 blah. Sent it in. All right, so back in those days, I had a radio show. I actually, I, I'm kind of amazed at how many people still remember that show. And and we we update the, you know, we call them podcasts these days. Um, but the old days, it was a formal radio show. And I would get, and I had, it was an anachronism. I would get, you know, one guest. I would read their books. 
develop intelligent questions, send it to them ahead of time, and then we have this intelligent back and forth. You know, today everything is five to seven minute segments, but this, this was old school, if you will. But anyway, my guest happened to be a guy named Bruce Steiner, who is an IRA expert uh, practicing in New York. And, you know, he got on the phone that was airing live. And I said, hi, Bruce, how are you? And he says, I'm furious. Well, what's the matter, Bruce? He said, today there was an article in the Wall Street Journal. And it said if the underlying asset was an IRA, that you shouldn't name a trust, that you should just leave that money to the IRA beneficiary. And that was absolutely terrible advice. What they should do is look for an estate attorney who understands how to draft um, the, tr the appropriate trust when the underlying asset is an IRA. And I was so mad, I wrote a letter to the Wall Street Journal telling them what bad advice that that was, which was exactly what my reaction is. By the way, needless to say, the Wall Street Journal didn't publish either of our letters, but we were both on the same wavelength. I would say, and, and, and Matt Schwartz, who is our uh, veteran estate attorney, he's been with me 18 years and has actually worked for big firms uh, before he joined us. Um, he's reviewed thousands of, uh, let's say, estate plans when the underlying asset, or at least much of it, was IRAs and retirement plans. And in virtually all those, you need a trust, even if, you know, the, you have, even if you just have the possibility of grandchildren, you should have a trust. So virtually everybody should have some form of trust as the beneficiary of their IRA, even if it is a remote contingent, meaning spouse first, kids next. And I, you notice I said a trust for the benefit of the grandchildren or maybe a special needs trust or whatever it might be. Anyway, it's Matt's calculation that way over 90% of the estate attorneys botch this trust. This trust must meet five specific conditions in order to qualify as a designated beneficiary of the IRA to get the maximum tax deferral as possible. And hardly any estate attorneys get this right. Even if they got it right, in the old days, they were drafting what were called conduit trust, which meant that money was um, <clears throat> that had to come out of the trust to the beneficiary. And the reason we did that was the beneficiary's tax rates was usually lower than the trust tax rates. So in order to save taxes, we had what were called um, conduit trusts. All right. <clears throat> Today, when you have a forced distribution within 10 years, this provision could be horrendous and could be a tax disaster. So now we are doing what is called accumulating trust. And for that reason alone, even if the documents were done right, many people should have their documents redone because of that feature. Now, I will also tell you, and I don't know if you call this good or bad news, but a lot of people will tell me, you know, well, gee, Jim, one of the things that we need to do is we need to update our estate plan. You know, we had it done or, you know, wills, trust, beneficiaries of IRAs. Uh, we had it done five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and it certainly needs updated. And I always review because I'm not going to, I'm not going to recommend changes if what you have is fine. But what we find the vast majority of the time is the biggest problem isn't that the wills are outdated. 
It was they were wrong from day one. Now, again, we're pretty fussy. We've done, you know, close to 3,000 of these, and we're taking into consideration income taxes, estate taxes. We use these disclaimer concepts, um, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the truth of the matter is hardly any of the attorneys are really up on, on these strategies. But what we find is that the wills were never done right. And if people die with these wills that were not done right, I'm not going to say it's always going to be terrible for the family, but that's not the way that you maximize um, the resources that you and your family have accumulated during your lifetimes. The way to maximize it is to get the best estate plan that has the disclaimer provisions, that have the trust provisions, that have the minority trust provisions, that meet the five conditions in order to qualify as a designated beneficiary of an IRA and get this right. And President Biden just announced that he's going to uh, significantly um, put more money uh, to the IRS. So the chances of, let's say, attention might end up being much greater than they are now. And by the way, that would be an easy way for the IRS to collect a lot of money is if some of these provisions were not drafted appropriately. Again, if <laughs> if they're not right, don't feel bad. They probably weren't right before the SECURE Act, and most people really end up with botched documents. All right, so the SECURE Act, in a way, makes things much worse because the impact that the survivor makes is going to be very, very important. And we might want to change the idea of who gets what. So as an example, let's say that somebody had a multi-million dollar um, estate and they died. And let's assume for discussion's sake that it was appropriate to disclaim or not accept and I'm just going to use a million dollars as an example. So before the SECURE Act, what we would do is we would typically disclaim that million dollars to kids or even to trust for the benefit of the grandkids in order to get this great stretch IRA. And we literally save families sometimes millions of dollars by doing this postmortem planning where we disclaimed the appropriate asset. Well, today, let's say it's the same thing. Uh, there's more money than the surviving spouse needs. We want to get it to the next generation or maybe, maybe the second generation, uh, that is the grandchildren, at the first death. And if we disclaim the IRA, then the kids or the grandkids are going to have to take pull it all out in 10 years where the surviving spouse could stretch it over their life expectancy and have the joint life expectancy factor of them and 10 years younger than them. So it will likely make more sense to disclaim after tax dollars, assuming that they are there. Or what is really the best way is to actually figure out the tax brackets of the kids, the grandkids, the parents, and you know you kind of split the baby a little bit. Well, you disclaim a certain amount, Matt Schwartz, who you think estate attorneys wouldn't be that, that quantitative. Matt actually has a math degree from Northwestern. He came up with something that he called the 24% optimizer, which is he would disclaim enough so that the surviving spouse wouldn't have to pay income taxes at 24% 
anything higher than 24%. And by the way, you know, the surviving spouse is going to have to file the year of death. They file married filing jointly, but the year after death, it becomes single. So the tax rates of the surviving spouse are going to go way up. So it might make some sense to disclaim some money to reduce the taxes that the surviving spouse would ever want to disclaim. And it's too hard to predict and to figure all this stuff out, which is why this flexible plan is so beneficial. So anyway, I have uh, gone on for a while. I think it would be appropriate uh, for me to check in, see if there are some questions, see how we are doing with time. Um, maybe if you have not yet and you want to uh, take advantage of that offer, uh, that might be a good time to do that. So Erica, I will ask you how, uh, do we have any questions at this point? We do have a lot of questions. I think this is a record for the longest you've gone in the presentation before you asked four questions. But yes, we do have questions and um, we probably have more questions than we'll get to in this session. So I'll reserve some of them, particularly ones that seem more investment focused for the uh, 1 p.m. But uh, let's get started now with the first one. Uh, this one uh, is from Laura, and she was she asked this when you were talking about the uh, Langs Cascading Beneficiary Plan, specifically holding off on making any determinations about who gets what until the nine-month period after the death of the first spouse. And she says, you're assuming a mentally competent spouse. What if the spouse has dementia? Uh, do you use a revocable trust or? Well, um so maybe this is a little bit off point, but it's a very important point. Every time that we draft, whether it's a will or a revocable trust or beneficiary designations also of uh, retirement plans and take care of the money part, we also draft two other documents. Um, one is a power of attorney and the other one uh, for money. And the other one is a power of attorney for healthcare. Let's specifically talk about um, what happens uh, to the standard power of attorney. The standard power of attorney says that the person, and, and typically, by the way, I'm using children um, or, you know, adult children. I am not using a bank or a trustee or a lawyer or a CPA. I prefer family members. The typical document will say, even if there is a disclaimer provision in there, which there usually isn't, but the typical document will say that the person that you give the power to make these financial decisions, again, usually it's one of your kids, can do can make the decision for the bent for the uh, person who can't make the decision themselves, but they themselves can't benefit from that action. So let's just say let's just make up a number. Let's say that the estate is four million dollars. Uh, and what is appropriate is to disclaim a million dollars to some combination of kids and grandkids um, at the time of death. Well, under the traditional power of attorney, the person who is has that power cannot disclaim if they would end up being the beneficiary or the partial beneficiary that would come about through that disclaimer. So we're always going to do the power of attorney, but our powers of attorney say that the person making the disclaimer can benefit. So we're, we're at, you have to, by the way, we always ask, can, can you trust the kid? 
And, you know, 95% or more of the people say yes. So it's a little subtle thing. By the way, there's a lot of these kinds of little subtle things in our documents that you wouldn't expect. But I would say the standard document has some provision for it, but I don't think that that provision is anywhere near what we need. So our special um, power of attorney documents does take care of that problem. Um, so I hope that helps. Thanks, Jim. So the next question comes from the live room as well, and it's from Joanne. And she says, we have a revocable living trust. Should the secondary beneficiary be the trust or my three kids individually? Well, um, a revocable trust is really a will substitute. So and if we're talking about at the second death or the contingent beneficiary after the first death, uh, if there is no reason to have a trust for the benefit of your kids, then I happen to be... Uh, I happen to believe in simplification if possible. So let's say that your kids don't have any special situations. Maybe they're in good marriages. Maybe they have good judgment. Um, maybe you think that all of your kids will be appropriate. Um, on the other hand, let's say that one of your kids is a spendthrift. Well, we need a trust for that kid. Let's say one of your kids is disabled. We need a trust for that kid. Let's say one of your kids is married to somebody that you don't trust. We call it, we actually have a, a trust that we call the I don't want my no good son-in-law to inherit one red cent of my money trust. Um, there might be a good reason that rather than leaving money to a kid outright, that you might want to leave money to a trust for the benefit of that kid. Uh, and by the way, different attorneys go on different, there's kind of a continuum. Uh, Bruce Steiner, the guy that I mentioned earlier, he assumes everybody's going to sue everybody for everything. And he he wouldn't even put, think of putting money into uh, going having money going to a child outright. He's almost always going to draft a trust. Uh, to me, if I see there's a good reason to draft a trust, I'm going to recommend drafting that trust as the beneficiary or even the contingent beneficiary. Uh, on the other hand, I will tell you, attorneys love to draft trusts. Oh boy, here's the situation. I'm going to draft a trust. This is going to be so much fun. This is great. All right, so they draft the trust, sometimes when it's not really needed, at least in my opinion. And it's called a testamentary trust, which means it doesn't come into effect. There's no tax return. There's no money transferred. Nothing happens until somebody dies. So it could be sitting there in a safety deposit box for 10, 20, 30 years. But then at death, then this thing becomes a living, breathing entity that has to file a tax return and you need a trustee and there has to be a K-1 and there there's a bunch of stuff. Who ends up getting stuck doing all that work? What's well, the CPA? So as CPAs, uh, we end up sometimes doing all this work for trust for this resp responsible, mature adult child who really didn't need it. So, um, and by the way, there's ways to draft trust that will that you can say, well, at, you know, based on the discretion, we can eliminate the trust, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, my point is there's a continuum of uh, the way estate attorneys think on whether people should leave their money in trust or not. I may be falling that somewhere in the middle. Maybe 
a little bit more for trust because I'm afraid of no good son-in-laws. I'm afraid of spendthrifts. I'm afraid of drug and alcohol users. Um, so, you know, excessive, I don't mean a, a drink now and then. Um, so anyway, I hope that that answers the question, but, um, sometimes, and, and by the way, with minors, to me, I always want to do a trust because even under the uniform gift to minors act, the kid will still have unrestricted use of that money at either 18 or 21. And I don't want your grandkids to have a party at 18 or 21 and blow their inheritance because nobody went to the trouble of, of drafting a trust for them. Hope that help, hope that helps. Why don't we take one or two more? And then Great. We'll yes. And so I've also been able to get an update from our uh, technical team and um, how we're doing on time. So it's 1138 and we are 60% finished with these slides in the presentation. So maybe we'll do one more question here and then uh, reserve like uh, maybe one at the end and then save the others for the uh, 1 p.m. And so since this might be the last time that I'm on before our 1 p.m., I just wanted to remind people that if you are interested either in potentially investing with us or in uh, master plan development engagement that you can go ahead and just fill out the form for the re retire secure initial consultation, which you'll see above the chat box right now. Um, and then we will contact you to schedule your appointment. So the next question, Jim, it's from the live room and it's from John. And he says, if I use up my exemption, and I think the implication here is the federal lifetime estate and gift tax exemption through gifting, what happens when the exemption is reduced? So I think he's referring to the sunset clause of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Well, um, so there, is, I'd like to go into this at, at length. There is something called the clawback. Um, it's gonna to apply to very few people. And since Erica said we are time stretched, I'm not gonna answer that because again, this is like if you're married, you know, we're probably talking about people that will, that have or will have more than $10 million. So in the interest of time, I'm, I'm just going to move on. I, I apologize. I really would prefer to answer all questions, but particularly after Erica warned me. By the way, I think that's the first time I've ever gone over <clears throat> or gotten a little bit of time travel. I'm obviously being facetious. Okay. So why don't we move on? And it would be better if my clicker worked. Um, there, there we go. So another very cool concept, and this charitable remainder trust is the beneficiary of IRAs, have been around a long time, and I'm not the first guy to talk about them. But here is what is so, and, and by the way, they're no better than they were before the SECURE Act. Um, and to oversimplify um, what they are is rather than naming your child as a beneficiary, let's keep it simple. Let's say there's a million dollars in the IRA. Let's say that you name your spouse as the primary beneficiary. And let's say the choice that I'm now bringing up, and let's keep it simple, one kid is between that one kid or a charitable remainder trust. Um, so we're talking about a charitable remainder trust as the contingent beneficiary of an IRA. And I'm gonna use the example of a million dollars. So what the trust would say is it provides an income, technically not income as you know it, and I'm going to oversimplify, and it's going to depend on the um, 7502 rate, it's going to depend on the age of the beneficiary, um, but let's just call it something that we would think of as a very generous income, like maybe six, seven, eight percent of the balance of the inherited IRA goes to the child 
And the child doesn't have to take the money out within 10 years as if you had left it to them. So they're getting this regular income that is lasting for the rest of their lives. And I, I don't have time to go into some of the, some of the nuances, um, but ultimately the amount is calculated based on the charity, uh, based on present value of projections, getting 10% of the present value of the inherited IRA. But the good news is that your child's paying taxes along the way on the distributions that they're receiving, but they're not paying taxes on that whole amount within 10 years. So you get a, so it's, it is a way of, and it doesn't really exactly replicate the old death of the stretch or the old stretch IRA rules, but there is a major, major income tax deferral on it. And then when your child dies, whatever's left will then go to the charity of either your or your child's choice. Um, when we were first looking at these, I got really excited and we ran some numbers. Um, and by the way, let's see if I can get to those. Uh, where is it? Uh, shoot, I don't have the chart up. Um, but anyway, the, the chart showed that in certain situations that the kids were actually much better off than if you just left them the money. Um, and that was that's actually in the book. And then what happened, and, and that was accurate based on the assumptions that we used in the book. Then in practice, uh, we got different assumptions, obviously. And then we found out that, well, gee, there were more and more situations where if all you cared about were your kids, where this trust was maybe not as good as just leaving money to your kids, even with the income tax acceleration, but that if you were, if you had some charity in your heart, and you like the idea of your kids getting a regular income, maybe your kids need a trust anyway because of the no good son-in-law or because of the drug or alcohol or because of whatever it might be, this ends up being a really interesting uh, alternative, which I would love to spend more time on. Um, and, but I will just say that it is um, a really good solution for certain people and it's a really good solution if you want to make sure your kid is okay, you want it to stretch or defer um, the taxes as much as you legally can, and you have some charity in your heart. Um, and it's going to be highly situational. If all you care about is your kids, it's probably not going to work for you. But for some people, it will work very well. And if you are actually do have charitable intent, it might end up being a great solution. So now I want to talk about another really cool concept. And when you hear this, it's a little bit like the cascading beneficiary plan. You're going to say, gee, that makes sense. This one even makes more sense. And it's really simple. And I call it who gets what. And I can't believe, now maybe somebody figured this out and they put it in the literature somewhere. Um, I never saw it in the literature. I to the best of my knowledge, I came up with it. And let's assume for discussion's sake that you are interested in leaving some money to charity at your death. And I'm just going to pick up a number of um, $100,000. <clears> now, charities don't care who, which type of money they get. If a charity receives an IRA, a Roth IRA, after-tax dollars, whatever it might be, they don't care. But your heirs, 
it makes a big difference to them if they inherit an IRA, a 401k, a um, after-tax dollars, a Roth dollar. Um, they, they care a lot. So since the charity doesn't care in what form, and the IRA is the worst asset to inherit, particularly after the SECURE Act, what we find is that um, $100,000 to a charity is $100,000. Again, they don't care if it's after tax, et cetera. But to an heir, if you leave $100,000 of after tax dollars to a charity, that means the heir, most likely your, one of your kids or a combination of your kids, they're getting $100,000 less. What if instead of naming your charity as the beneficiary of in, in your will or your trust of after-tax dollars, let's say instead and you name them the charity as the beneficiary up for $100,000 in your IRA. All right, so the charity's getting the same $100,000. They don't care. But your kids, they're, they're not getting that $100,000 IRA. But since that $100,000 IRA, and I'm going to oversimplify and say that that's worth $76,000 to them because they're going to have to pay taxes on it. And there's an argument that it's, it's, it's worth a little bit more, but let's just keep it simple. It's going to cost them $76,000. So just by switching who gets what, we're saving $24,000 for the family. And, and that is very, very cool. And hardly any estate attorneys get this right. Uh, it's so rare, um, and very honestly, for years, our firm didn't get this right. Uh, but who gets what? Leave the charity, the IRA, the after-tax dollars um, to your children. So um, get this thing right. Again, that one little switch, quick $24,000 savings for your kids. All right, so what we do is we say, okay, we're going to leave the charity the $100,000, but they get it through inheriting a portion of the IRA. And usually people are much more generous at the second death. That is both after I and my spouse die, then the $100,000 from or, or $100,000, a portion of the IRA goes to uh, charity. And the untaxed dollars or the Roth IRA dollars, they go to family members. So you can save a quick $24,000 or you could do it another way. Well, gee, I was willing to have my kids get $100,000 less. Is there a way that we can still use that number and get more money to the charity? And the answer is yes. Instead of leaving the money to a charity in your will using after-tax dollars, we can leave IRA money to charity. Let's say we leave $131,579 to charity. All right, so now the charity gets $131,000. Your kids um, get $131,000 of IRA money left, but since after paying taxes, that $131,000 to your kids is only worth $100,000, just by switching who gets what, we've got an extra $31,000 to the charity. So we can either give your kids an extra $24,000 or the charity an extra $31,000 just by switching who gets what. Gee, Jim, isn't this a zero-sum game? And how can you save that money just by switching who gets what? Well, yes, it is a zero-sum game, but one of the players is the IRS. And if we reduce the IRS's share by $24,000 or by $31,000, that's either more money for your kids 
or more money for charity. Very, very cool. Hardly anybody does it. This concept of who gets what also can apply to your kids. So here is a not terribly unusual situation. Your kids are not equally strong financially, and they might be in a significantly different tax bracket. Well, let's just change up who gets what at the expense of the IRS. So what you would do is you would leave your Roth IRA and your after-tax dollars to the financially stronger child who is in a higher tax bracket, and you leave the taxable IRA to the child who is in the lower tax bracket. And then here's the tricky part is figuring out a way to uh, be fair and equalize. But, you know, if, and maybe you don't get it exactly 50-50, maybe you get it 49-51. But if the kid who ended up with 49% um, actually got much more money based on purchasing power because maybe they got a Roth IRA that they're not going to have to pay tax on, or the other way, they're the child in a low tax bracket and they got a much bigger IRA than they would have otherwise, uh, they shouldn't be unhappy that the share might not be exactly 50-50 because both kids got so much more. And we have seen literally hundreds of thousands of dollars, and that was actually just for a 13% difference in a tax bracket. If we have a 20% or more, then there's a bigger difference. Um, and then also uh, you might have um, people with um, maybe live in different states or beneficiaries in different states, and the different tax laws might also help uh, save even more money with the concept of who gets what. Um, many of us do have some estate tax dangers that we didn't have before with the 11.7 million or uh, with uh, two exclusions with something called portability. We had a $23 million exclusion. Uh, that is going to likely be closer to $10 million. Um, a lot of times it makes sense to do uh, gifts. Um, and again, I'm having problems with my clicker. So I'll do this from memory. Uh, I'm a big fan of the $15,000 per year, which doesn't eat into the exclusion. Um, if you're married, you can do 30,000 a year, or you can give $60,000 a year to your to a beneficiary and their spouse. Um, all kinds of different gifts. There's the $15,000 a year. Life insurance is a type of a gift. 529 plans are a type of a gift. Funding your child's Roth IRA is a type of a gift. Um, sometimes you just give your money to some kids and say, here. And that also ties into the concept uh, and we talked more about this in the first session of cashing in a portion of the IRA and then taking what's left and then giving it to your kid and having that money go in some type of tax-free vehicle. So that might be a Roth IRA for themselves. That might be a 529 plan that will grow income tax-free for the benefit of your grandchildren to be used for their education. That might be life insurance. All of those are examples of paying the taxes now getting out of the taxable environment into the tax-free environment and have the additional benefit of being um, outside of your estate. So all of those are really cool. There's, uh, well, I don't even want to get into the um, 
there's, a, there's also some other really cool trusts that probably don't apply to most people. So why don't we do a quick review? Don't pay taxes now, pay taxes later, except for the Roth IRA and Roth IRA conversion. We talked about the SECURE Act and the basic rules, and we talked about the best estate plan for married couples after the SECURE Act and the new administration. Uh, we talked a little bit about charitable remainder trust. Uh, by the way, if you want to read more, uh, chapter eight in the book, Beating the New Death Tax, which is one of your bonuses. Uh, we talked a little bit about uh, who gets what. We just touched the surface on gifting. So what are some of the ways that I could, I and my office could potentially help you? So I mentioned earlier, we basically have two models. One is what we call the financial master plan, um, which by the way, is very individualized. There are no two of it been even close to each other, although there's obviously some common themes. The most common theme is the uh, people that we work with have big IRAs and retirement plans. And we just test different possibilities. Scenario number one, let's call it the, the status quo. Scenario number two, we do a series of Roth IRA conversions between now and age 72, and then we stop. And then we project that forward, not just for your life, but the life of your kids. Scenario number three, we do much larger Roth IRA conversions uh, till 72. Number four, we even go past the age of 72 and we see what that looks like. Number five, we start combining different strategies. What we do that and we hold off on social security. Uh, we do Roth IRA conversions and we do uh, life insurance. We do Roth IRA conversions and life insurance uh, and 529 plans, all of which, by the way, is, is one form of going from the taxable to the tax-free environment. And we do all these scenarios. You're in the virtual room the whole time, not the whole time, but much of the time while we're doing this, and you get to see the results. You get to question the results. You get to question the assumptions. We can put in, you know, most any scenario that you like, and then you, you have the basis for making a much better decision. Um, we also talk about how much money you can spend. That's very important. Very few of our clients spend anywhere near what they can afford. And by the way, that's also true even after we do this, um, running the numbers, but that's something I'm always going to be fighting. The area I've succeeded though, is we've got clients to loosen up about taking family vacations and hopefully that will be much more, uh, prevalent after, uh, it is safe, um, after the pandemic and after everybody is vaccinated. My, my family is actually considering, let's call it a socially distance uh, get together with vaccinated folks. Um, problem there is kids, by the way. But anyway, um, we're going to want to look at your wills, your trust, your beneficiary designations, recommend the best estate plan, and most likely work with a local attorney, assuming you're not a PA resident, uh, to get that for you. Uh, that is frankly a pain in the you-know-what to us. It's one of the reasons we charge $10,000 because there is a bunch of our time getting your estate planning right, even though we are not the attorney of records and we are not actually drafting the documents. And again, you know, Roth IRA conversions, et cetera. You're in the room while we do this. So the deliverable, by the way, is a report. And it basically, to oversimplify, well, we looked at maybe 20 different scenarios or 10 different scenarios. We narrowed it down to three. Here's the spreadsheets. 
here's the arguments for and against the three, here's the one that you are leaning towards, um, et cetera. After, do, after our consultation, um, and by the way, for I won't even talk with you, and not because I'm rude, but I only want to work with people who I can provide enormous value to. So if you have a situation where I don't think I can provide, my rule of thumb is I'd love to provide at least 10 times what we charge. But if I don't think I can provide great value for you, we're, I'm probably not even going to accept uh, you to talk with uh, because I only want to work with people that I can truly provide a lot of value. And if you're doing everything right or even close to right, I might not have all that much to add. So why should you pay me $10,000? Um, and frankly, I have turned down jobs where people really wanted me to do the work because I just didn't think it was in their best interest for me to do that. I am a fiduciary. But after our meeting, and sometimes with you at literally still on the Zoom call, I draft this pretty comprehensive memo. And I talk about what I think might be the best estate plan. I talk about your special situations. If you're interested in assets under management, that memo goes to the wealth advisor, Adam Yofian. Um, we, all, we all actually have a few more too, but let's say most of them these days are going to Adam. Um, it will go to our state attorney who will use that as, let's say, the basis or it will help him or her understand some of the things that are unique to your family that might that you might not have filled out on the questionnaire. It will go to our number cruncher who will ultimately actually run the numbers and, and be the quantitative guy behind the financial master plan. And many times, and I'm really not exaggerating, that Momo itself would be easily worth $10,000. If I say, hey, you know, in your situation, you should give a million bucks to each kid. That might be a savings of $10 million to your family, certainly a million dollars, uh, even a gift of a million dollars because you're getting appreciation outside of your state, which might be appropriate for that, that gentleman who said he used up the maximum for his exclusion. But you're, you're getting a lot with the master plan. Um, and again, it is uh, $10,000. It includes the living side. It includes the dying side. We also have an assets under management model, which is what I would call our major model, which I think is the most appropriate for most people, um, which involves continuing. That is every year we are doing this financial master plan or at least updating the one we did the prior year. So that happens every year, but you don't pay $10,000 every year. In fact, you don't even pay us $10,000 for the master plan in any years. What you do is you pay the money manager or the wealth advisor 1%, less if it's more than a million dollars, but I'm just gonna simplify and say 1%. And the way it works is he ends up charging you the 1%. Let's just keep the math simple. Million dollars, 1%, $10,000. He keeps 5000 then he writes us a check for 5000 And for that $5,000, we do the financial master plan that if you didn't use the money manager, we would charge you $10,000 for. Now, why would we do that? Because frankly, it takes a lot more than $5,000 of work for us to do that, that financial master plan. It's because at least the last time we, we ran this, we have a 97% retainage rate. There's a very, very good chance if you start with us, you're gonna stay with us. 
and we're going to get a regular income. And to me, that is frankly more satisfying. So this is kind of the no worry done for you solution. Uh, we, our minimum is a million dollars. We make exceptions, but at least that is our starting point of a million dollar minimum. Before you say yes, you would, you would meet. And these days, of course, meeting means a virtual uh, Zoom meeting or, or uh, you know, um, maybe Skype. I think, I think, I think, or, or, or Google, what is it? Google clubs or Google, I should, I should know this stuff. But anyway, um, he's a wonderful money manager. He's going to be the guy who's on at one o'clock Eastern, which again, I encourage you if you've not signed up to listen to that. He uses the best set of in, enhanced index funds on the planet, which is dimensional fund advisors. And then, so he does all that. He does the money management. He does the asset location. He has his own 40-step process, blah, 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 blah. He would be well worth 1% or more just by himself. But if you do it through us, you get him and you get us doing what we would otherwise charge $10,000 for. Um, so we think it is a win-win-win. We get to do what we love, which is the strategies and the running the numbers. He gets to do what he loves, which is the money management, his 40-step process. He gets great hand, clients handed to him on a silver platter. Um, we get a, a regular income uh, for good work. And we think the real winner of the deal is you. And I'll look you in the digital eye and tell you, I don't know of a better deal anywhere for an asset under management arrangement. So anyway, if you are interested in that, if you're interested in the financial master plan, uh, there should be a place that you can click that you can say, yes, I am interested. Then we will send you a questionnaire, et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to ask a lot of stuff. We're going to ask for um, a list of assets. We're going to ask for to see your will. We're going to ask to see your tax return. Uh, we're going to ask to see your investments because I really, and, and by the way, I spend time before I meet with you, uh, well, first, just to figure out if I think we are a good fit. Um, and then second, because I want to make the most of our meeting. So um, if you're a Pennsylvania resident, um, we could actually draft documents. If you're not, we help with the drafting of the documents, um, which, by the way, can be enormously valuable um, in ways that are even hard to measure. And if by working with us in one form or another, you're establishing a relationship with us. So if something comes down uh, along down the road, uh, you, you have people that you know, you trusted, had a good uh, experience with. So the next step is assuming that you say, yep, I want to talk with this guy. I want to see if this is a good fit. Um, I want to meet, meet him. And I don't want to promise an hour, but they usually are an hour, some not as long. If, by the way, if it's clear that I can't help you or we're not a good fit. I'll just try to give you a couple good tips and get off the Zoom meeting early. Um, on the other hand, if I think we are, we sometimes go over an hour, whether it is the $10,000 running the numbers and the financial master plan or the assets under management. Um, you're going to get a couple ideas. I, it's impossible for me to do a meeting. And I'm also going to constantly be switching hats. I'm going to put on my CPA hat sometimes, I put on my retirement hat sometimes, my state attorney hat sometimes, my art registered investment hat sometimes. And again, you know, we, we look at this more holistically and we take into account taxes, legal, investments, et cetera, et cetera. 
So um, I've done thousands of these things over the years, that is consultations. No one to my knowledge has ever said or even implied it was not worth their time. And again, if I don't think that you're a good candidate to work with us, um, I'm not going to um, accept you. I'm having a little problem moving my clicker forward. Um, but the, the, the key is, if you are interested in doing this, and as I said, we, we are crushed with work. We already have a several month backlog on running the numbers. Uh, asset under management people go, let's say, cut in line, but then also we're doing it on uh, the, the time that people actually signed up for the, the consultation. So you would presumably, if the same situated people, let's say you're, you're interested in the $10,000 number on somebody who, uh, let's say, signs up at the end of the day, also says they're interested, you're going to get priority. So if that is something that you want to do, uh, there should be, and I don't see it, but there should be a chat box or something that where you click on and then you can, um, uh, and that will take you to a page that you can fill out and that starts the process of getting a Zoom call. And it's again, not with my guys, it is with me. So, um, and again, I'm having... Oh, they're, they're, well, no, I'm still having problems. So you're, you're, you're going to end up with an actionable plan. To, it, it has to be worth $1,000 to have this consultation. We don't, we don't charge that. Um, it is free for qualifying individuals. And um, if you think it is appropriate and there is a good possibility of working with us, knowing that the fee is going to be <clears throat> either a minimum of $10,000 or having a million dollars for assets under management, I would strongly encourage you to sign up. Uh, there should be a link and um, that you see. Again, I'm having problems with the PowerPoint, so I'm just gonna do this and, and we're, we're about wrapped up anyway. Um, but click the offer in the link um, and that will start us on the day. If we both agree, I do this memo, which is then transcribed, it's edited. By the way, Erica is wonderful with these edits. And she will sometimes add stuff that she knows I would want in. I, of course, have final say, and I do review it. And it does go out to the estate attorney, um, even if we're not doing the wills and trusts because you're not a PA resident. It will go to Adam if you're interested in assets under management. It will go to the CPA who's doing the uh, number crunching. Uh, I'm not allowed to promise investment results. I can promise to you that I care, that you'll be working with a great team, that we will work hard on your behalf. We are true fiduciaries. We will put your interest ahead of our own. So um, I encourage you to sign up. Um, while you are doing that, and there's a few more slides, but I, <laughs> I think we're, we're about out. Oh, the bonuses. That's what I forgot. Um, I, I can't remember. I never remember what we promise. But I'll just say that the hard copy of our latest and greatest book, Beating the New Death Tax, everybody should get that. And if nothing else, just read the, the first 16 pages. We call it an overview. Uh, we do a tax planning card. We give you some digital books, uh, my Social Security book, my Roth IRA book. Uh, and then the other really cool bonus. So right before the pandemic hit, and this was early March of uh, 2021, we had our last in-person workshop. 
And luckily, uh, we had a three-camera crew, and it was really, I mean, it's not quite TV, but it's much better than talking head, which is what this presentation is. You know, we have one camera, and it's switching over to the person asking the question, and then it goes to me, and then it goes to a PowerPoint, and then it goes to uh, the the projection screen, and it's it's much more interesting to to watch. And the other thing is there is a certain electricity to doing a live event with people in the room. Anyway, you get all that. Then we went ahead and we updated that. So that is also very cool. So uh, you can click in the uh, chat area to either have that and schedule the consultation with me um, and or uh, to sign up for your free bonuses. Uh, and again, if you have not already, I'm going to encourage you to, there should also be a link where you can sign up for the additional webinar that starts at one o'clock Eastern. And that's a Q&A with me, uh, Adam Yofan, and a true superstar in the investment area, which is Larry Swedro, who's kind of like the brain trust. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but that's what I think of him as is kind of like the investment brain guy um, of Buckingham. So I will thank everybody for uh, attending. I hope that I have fulfilled uh, my promise to give you the best information that I know how regarding the best estate plan for married, for married couples with Leave it to Beaver marriages, but we also covered some other areas also. So um, I don't know how we are doing on time, well, 11 minutes over. That's probably not bad for me. Um, Erica, what do you think? Do you think they're going to yell if we take one or two more questions? Or do you, uh, you know what? I think based on our record yesterday, I think we're doing so well. We should we should definitely take another question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, you, you may have, oh, you may have uh, gone over before. Oh, maybe <laughs> once. I, I'm not I'll, sure. I'll, I'll tell you the problem, being very, very honest. Even though I have these PowerPoints to kind of uh, – which is, it's partly for you and it's partly for me, but I'm not really scripted. So each time, even if, even with an identical invitation, identical topics, I, each workshop is different because I am not scripted and I will think of different things and I present in different ways and I try to get better and better. I, I probably err on the side of too much information and speaking too quickly. But I'm, again, I'm, my goal is I want to give you great substance um, great value, whether you end up doing business with us or not. And very frankly, we have a lot more people. We couldn't handle we couldn't handle ten percent of the people who are on this webinar right now. To be very honest, if you all signed up for a consultation, so I do recognize that um, we're not going to be doing business with everybody or even close to everybody. But I want everybody to get a ton of value. So why don't I shut up and let Erica uh, tell us the first or the next question. Yes. And actually, I'd, I think maybe this could be our wrap up question because it's kind of long. But um, I also just wanted to address if you did sign up for a consultation yesterday, expect to be receiving a call either later this afternoon or tomorrow. We usually like to start the calls after the second days of webinars have ended so that 
We're not having someone calling you while you're actually watching another presentation the next day. Uh, Janet had mentioned that she signed up yesterday, but yes, Janet, we uh, we did receive uh, your request and and expect to receive a call from Sue uh, to help coordinate scheduling your appointment very very shortly. So um, this question actually, Jim, it comes from Paul. I don't know if you remember, but he uh, actually flew in specifically to attend the what ended up being the last in-person workshop that we did uh, in Monroeville in February of 2020. And uh, he said this, he said, you foresaw years early and advised about the death of the stretch IRA that has come to pass. And you foresaw the proposed end of the step up in basis among several other items. With all of the changes that have come to pass in 2021, along with additional changes that have been announced and more that are contemplated. Do you foresee that the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 will be rescinded prior to the built-in sunset on uh, the 31st of December, 2025? And if so, do you foresee that the default resultant increased tax rates would be effective back to January 1st of the rescission year or delayed until January 1st of the following year? So that's a lot. <laughs> Okay. Well, first, I, I mean, I'm not Nostradamus, right? Um, although that was Dan Kennedy's characterization of me when I kept saying, the death of the stretch is coming, the death of the stretch is coming. And actually, I actually irritated a number of people. And they and one person who used to refer me stopped referring me because I kept saying the death of the stretch was coming. Uh, and for five years, it didn't come. And now, you know, of course, <clears throat> after it comes, instead of being the boy who cried wolf, I was, in Dan Kennedy's words, Nostradamus. So the, the true answer is who knows, but let me give you my best guess. And perhaps more importantly, let me give you the best guess as to what you should do about it. As I had mentioned, it's really tough to decide what's gonna happen with things regarding your estate plan, uh, which income taxes is important, the federal exclusion is important, what state you're in is important, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it, I, I actually think if, if the answer to your question, I don't think that for the 99.5% act is going to pass as is. I don't think we're going to go back to 3.5 million, but I do believe, and I think that it's just going to be because it's going to be too hard to get any major, major tax act that, that affects individuals um, through Congress, even a democratically controlled Congress. And I don't want to get into the details, but between Joe Manson and there's another Democrat that might not be on board, I think a major tax increase, uh, and particularly one that would go from 11.7 to 3.5 million, I don't think that's going to happen. But um, the federal government desperately needs money. That's pretty obvious, even without you know, the the most recent, um, let's call it pandemic bailout, even without what it might very well pass, which is a huge infrastructure bill. Um, and just the whole nature, and, you know, we're talking about uh, climate change and putting in 500,000 500, electric charger stations and, and the infrastructure changes, et cetera, et cetera. We have all these massive needs and that, that doesn't even take into consideration that the vast majority of the federal and state and local pensions are significantly overfunded. You know, we have lead in all these pipes, the roads are a mess, the airports are a mess. 
uh, somebody's going to have to pay for this stuff. Uh, by the way, Pittsburgh's plan is it's going to get worse and worse, uh, but that's another issue. Um, but anyway, I do think that income tax increases are coming down the road. I think it's going to be very hard for them to pass something that will be um, terribly important for people making less than $400,000, which doesn't even have the support of Joe Biden right now. But since there is this huge need, since I think it's going to be tough to get some of this legislation passed, when the jobs tax cut of 2017 that has the sunset provisions that have automatic increases and the income tax rates. And we talked about that a lot, a lot yesterday. And again, if you haven't seen that webinar, I would highly recommend that you do that. I, I, we only leave it up for like a couple of days. Um, and maybe you'll be getting an email about that. But to me, the, the, it's, it doesn't take a genius to realize, hey, income taxes are going to go up, the exclusion is going to come down, and that you should act accordingly. So things like Roth IRA conversions and going from the taxable environment when tax rates are low to the tax-free environment, um, and then when the rates go up, you have all these tax-free assets, or if it's outside your estate, in the form of life insurance, in the form of uh, 529 plans, in the form of Roth IRAs and Roth IRA uh, conversions for your kids, all these things are going to significantly enhance uh, your family's financial position. And finally, I will just end on a, let's say, an overall strategy difference between now and before the SECURE Act. So Again, back then, I was a great advocate of Roth IRA conversions. And I would, you know, say, oh, wow, look at what, look at the difference between doing the Roth IRA conversion and let's say disclaiming that Roth IRA conversion to a trust for the benefit of your grandchildren. Boy, we can just create so much wealth. This is just going to be wonderful. All right. Now, even though it might be the same action, maybe different amounts, different, you know, difference in strategy. There is a different mindset. To me, the mindset is if you just sit there and do nothing and you have these massive income tax rates, again, we went through some of the specifics yesterday when we talked about Roth IRA conversions. If you sit and do nothing and we have these massive income tax rates and you have these massive income tax acceleration at death because of the SECURE Act, you're your legacy is going to be like wiped out to a large extent. So now I'm very proactive, and but it's more like defense. It's more like defending what you already have rather than creating tax-free uh, growth for a generation. So there is a different mindset, and this is a little bit more of a defensive posture of defending yourself, your spouse, and your kids and your grandkids rather than, um, let's say, being opportunistic to take advantage of what we were allowed to do. So I think that, that this will end this session. Again, if you have not already um, and you wanted to meet with me, uh, we will leave the chat area. Oh, we will have that offer in the chat. Uh, do take advantage of the uh, free bonuses. They are very cool. You will be very happy you took advantage of that. Um, 
We have Adam Yofen at one o'clock. You have to sign up for that separately. It's just the nature of our software. We can't have you automatically sign up for, for each one. Although I think you, if you can do it for all of them that we do, and we have a, actually, I think like a thousand people who have done that. Um, and um, uh, there was one more, uh, Adam Yofen and Larry Swedjo at one, free consultation with me. Uh, that can be done now, um, the bonuses, and I hope to see everybody at uh, one o'clock. And I hope to see many of you in a one-on-one -on -one Zoom call where we can work on uh, protecting you and your family from the massive income taxes uh, that, will, that will occur in the event that you don't do anything and are passive uh, rather than being proactive about getting the ideal retirement and estate plan for yourself and your family. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this special edition of Jim Lang's Retire Secure Podcast, where smart money talks. If you've had your questions answered and would like to schedule an appointment to meet with Jim, call our offices at 1-800-387-1129. That number again is 1-800-387-1129. And if you would like to attend one of Jim's upcoming virtual events, go to paytaxeslater.com forward slash webinars. That address again is paytaxeslater.com forward slash webinars to reserve your virtual spot today.